Welcome to Church at the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. Unfortunately, due to some technical difficulties, we'll be cutting off a couple minutes from the beginning of the sermon. However, today we'll be in the book of Philemon, so if you'd like to turn there, we'll get started. Um, But when he mailed that letter to his brother, he told him where he was, and there was a return address on it. Um, And Subtle intercepted it, figured out where Anthony Burns was, and sailed north to collect his escaped property. Relying on the power of the law at the time, which was namely the Fugitive Slave Clause, Subtle arrived in Boston and went straight to the U.S. Marshal's office to issue a warrant for Burns' arrest. Fearing backlash from the many underground abolitionist groups that worked tirelessly to undermine this Fugitive Slave Clause by helping transport escaped slaves to Canada and provide them legal aid, one such group was called the Boston Vigilance Committee, or the BVC. The U.S. Marshal's office tricked Anthony Burns to come down to the station by falsely accusing him of robbing a silversmith store. They knew he didn't do it, um, but he figured he would go, clear his name, and be on his way. Once in custody, his master, Charles Suttle, came out from around the corner, literally, and revealed himself, and prepared to take Burns back to Virginia, where he would surely face cruel punishment for his escape, as was a slave owner's rights under Virginia law at that time. After some convincing, Burns finally allowed the BVC to mount a legal defense on his behalf, and they were given one week to prepare for the trial. One historian called this Boston's most dramatic and emotional week in its history since the Boston Tea Party nearly 100 years before that. The next night, the anti-slavery protests organized by the BBC and some other groups turned violent, and thousands of people rushed to the courthouse, which is now where the old state house is, right near State Street Coffee House, in an attempt to rescue Burns. In the ensuing confusion, a riot broke out, one person was killed, and dozens were injured. U.S. President Franklin Pierce was fearful of further uprisings and sent a company of 200 U.S. Marines to defend the courthouse. His Secretary of War, Jefferson Davis, any history buffs might know who that is, he soon became the President of the Confederacy, carefully monitored the growing chaos in Boston. When Burns' trial began on Monday morning, May 19, 1854, the courthouse looked like a military fortress under siege, crawling with hundreds of Marines manning several layers of security. At the time, legal proceedings under the Fugitive Slave Law were not legal proceedings or trials at all, and the decision was fully subjective and up to the commissioner, who essentially was meant to decide whether or not the prisoner had fled captivity and who his rightful owner was. Unsurprisingly, a guy named Judge Loring ruled against Burns, and he was marched out of the courthouse, surrounded by a large contingent of these Marines, some 50,000 Bostonians. Think about what the population of this city was 150 years ago. 50,000 Bostonians lined the streets, draped in funeral black, booing, hissing, and screaming, kidnappers, kidnappers. Burns was marched down Long Wharf, we all know where that is, to begin his long voyage back back to Virginia and back to bondage. But Boston would never be the same again. As Amos Lawrence, who's the guy that the town of Lawrence is named after, Describe this transformation. We went to bed one night, old-fashioned, conservative, compromised union Whigs, and woke up stark, mad abolitionists. Shortly following these events, Reverend Grimes, who is the reverend of the 12th Baptist Church of Boston, would succeed in buying Burns' freedom. Burns returned to Boston. He later studied at Oberlin College in Ohio and became a minister um, over there. He died of tuberculosis less than a decade later, three weeks before the Gettysburg Address. But he had, more than almost anyone else, exposed the gaping divisions between North and South that would lead to disunion and the Civil War. And why did I just tell you all of that? 
First, so that you would feel a small pride of identification that the people in your city stood 50,000 strong, shoulder to shoulder, along the streets against the evil of slavery at a time when that was far from universally accepted as wrong. Second, to illustrate to us in a more local and relatable context what it must have been like for Onesimus to have run away, to be alone in a major city trying to keep his head down and start over, and for Philemon, his master, to assert his rights under Roman law to reclaim his slave and punish him, as we'll talk about. Anthony Burns' story, which happened here in our city, and brought this country a step closer to ripping itself apart over this particular brand of sin, has a lot of strong parallels to Onesimus' story. Before we get too much further, we're talking about some sticky stuff here, so I think it's wise just to spend a few minutes on some key differences and similarities between these two stories, and explore some thoughts on what we should do with the Bible and how it deals with slavery. This is a topic worth an entire sermon series on its own. I really don't want to preach that. Kevin, I'm sorry I'm teeing you up for that. That's, that's on you. Um, and if you have any sticky questions today, as usual, please go see Pastor Matt and not, and not me. Um, so we're not going to get all the answers here. I'm just going to say that up front. Um, but I think it's wise for us to go through this topic rather than around it. Um, and I think it would be a disservice to the text if we tried to sidestep this issue. Uh, frankly, I did not really consider that when I agreed to preach Philemon. Um, so I did this to myself. Um, and now I'm doing it to all of you. So welcome. Um, okay, so two notes. First, this is a comparison. It's not to say that one brand of slavery is right and one is wrong. They are both clearly wrong. Um, to be absolutely crystal clear, God detests the sin of slavery in all its forms. Subjugating another bearer of the Imago Dei to bondage flies in the face of biblical teachings across Scripture on the innate value we hold in the eyes of God as image bearers and the equal plane that both our sin and the gospel place us on before God. We are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God and are made to serve and worship God alone and enjoy Him forever. Second, this is not to make the point that one brand or flavor of slavery is more or less cruel than the other. It's very clear from historical context that enslaved people during both eras suffered routine and sometimes unspeakable abuse from their captors. The reason that we're going to do this is to help us remove our American goggles, which I just put on you, to be clear, um, through which we see the world so that we can better understand Onesimus' plight and so that we can better contextualize the ask that Paul has for Philemon in asking Philemon to forego his rights as a slave owner in this case. So I want you, after I just asked you to put your American goggles on so you can relate to this story, I want you to take them off. I want you to dust off or maybe excavate your first century AD goggles, if you have them, put them on, um, and we are going to try to appreciate how radically countercultural and wildly profound this letter really is in the context of history and in the context of our modern understanding of the gospel. Okay, deal? Okay. So when we in America think about slavery, we likely picture racially motivated chattel slavery that began in the American colonies in the 1600s through the brutal Atlantic slave trade. It grew increasingly racist through the three-fifths compromise, where the founding fathers counted slaves as three-fifths of a person. It followed the westward expansion of our country, the bloody civil war fought over slavery's place in our society, and continued through the passage of the 14th Amendment that legally abolished slavery, but then eroded into an era of segregation and Jim Crow. Of course, racial injustice still continues in plain sight to this day in our country. It's a stain on our history, and it's a, frankly a great stain on much of the American church, which in many parts of the country not only turned a blind eye to what was happening, but actively participated and even used passages of scripture, including this one, to justify the biblical, to try to, try to justify slavery in a biblical context as righteous. 
In the Roman Empire, slavery was similarly cruel, but it was fundamentally a class-based economic structure rather than a racial one. So in first century Rome, slaves were the spoils of war, and all kinds of people that were conquered by the Romans became slaves. People also often sold themselves or their family members, including their children, into slavery to pay off debt. We would call those people bond servants. We see that word in scripture a lot. And some were forced into slavery by the Roman government to pay off unpaid taxes. So this was uh, a way to pay off debt. Um, you could actually go in and out of slavery, and you would, on a legal basis, sort of lose and regain your personhood um, in first century Rome, which is pretty crazy to think about. Um, but when you were a slave, you did not have legal personhood, and when you bought your freedom, someone bought your freedom, you paid off your debt, uh, you could regain your legal personhood and the rights that came with that. And if you re-entered slavery through other debts or other means or capture or something else, you once again, for, you would have to forego your, your personhood once again. The practice of slavery, while rife with physical and sexual abuse, it did have some legal limits. For instance, Roman law, under Roman law, slaves could accumulate wealth, they could marry, they could buy their own freedom, they could buy the freedom of others. Slaves were automatically set free at the age of 30, which is actually similar to ancient Hebrew law, where every seven years, slaves were freed, and every 50th year in the Jubilee, all deaths, and deaths were forgiven and slaves were freed. This was also ubiquitous in Roman life. I've read quite a lot about this over the last couple weeks, and their estimates are pretty wild. Uh, they vary pretty wildly across time. Um, but at any point in the history, the arc of the history of the Roman Empire, uh, between 10 and up to 50% of the population of the empire at different times were enslaved. Think about that. At some points in that history, in that part of the world during history, every other person was a slave. That number declined rapidly, coincident with the rule of Constantine and the legalization of Christianity in the empire. In fact, Constantine himself actually instituted a law in the fourth century which expanded the power of churches to emancipate slave people in a congregation. It's something called manumission. We're not going to get into that. But um, this trend sort of peaked around the time of Paul or shortly after. Most early Christians opposed the ill treatment of slaves rather than the institution of slavery itself and placed no limits on the participation of slaves in the body. So whether you were Jew or Greek, slave or free, if you guys have heard that passage before, everyone sat together in the assembly. There was no belief or of differentiated salvation based on social class. So there, the early church did not hold the belief that you would be more or less saved or more or less redeemed in the eyes of God based on your social status. This was uh, sort of separate from the view of faith within the church. Um, in fact, slaves could even hold eldership in church and actually would be, then be commensurately responsible for church discipline um, which I imagine might have created some awkward situations over time if a slave as an elder might have had to exercise church discipline on his master. That's a little bit backwards. Um, that's entirely possible. However, on the whole, the Bible says relatively little about slavery, given how common of a practice it was at the time. So in the Pentateuch, there are laws about Israelites and their slaves. There's mention of this jubilee year, every 50 years in which slaves would be freed. Um, there's an exodus delivery of enslaved Egypt, enslaved Israel from their Egyptian masters, and there are repeated prohibitions against what the Bible calls man-stealing, which is essentially kidnapping or human trafficking. Um, that's banned repeatedly in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. <clears throat> Paul also denounced extramarital sexual behavior, which is true in all contexts, but as you, know, as you may know, in first century Rome, sexual exploitation of slaves was extremely common, both in a heterosexual and in a homosexual sense. Um, so by banning extramarital sexual encounters, um, this is a central tenet of what slavery was. Um, and 
think about that and, and weep for a moment. Um, there are household injunctions regarding the behavior of masters and slaves in Ephesians and Colossians. We're going to actually talk about those a little bit later. Um, as I mentioned, Paul says, in the eyes of God, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. This truth is applied to those who are baptizing Christ, which is mentioned in Galatians a little bit before that, which suggests that Paul expected slaves and free people to be treated equally in the body of Christ, like I mentioned, at least with regard to baptism and other church practices. And then 1 Corinthians 7, which is also a passage we'll return to later, um, Paul says that slaves should essentially live within their station, whether you are slave or free, live within your station, um, but take your freedom if you have the opportunity. Um, I'm going to put that one aside, we're going to return to that later. Um, but this is mentioned throughout scripture, and it's clear throughout the, the elements of many of the things that make slavery evil, scripture attacks central elements of what makes slavery evil, but it does stop short of attacking the institution itself, given its ubiquity. Paul does not condone it, he does not call for its abolition in Philemon, but he does acknowledge it. This is something sticky. I don't have an answer for why that is. Um, the upshot of all of this, though, is that without explicitly prohibiting slavery in Scripture, Paul has pointed the church away from slavery because it is an institution which is incompatible with the way that the gospel works in people's lives. Whether the slavery is economic, racial, sexual, mild, or brutal, Paul's way of dealing with Philemon works to undermine the institution across its various manifestations. And as we'll see, Paul instead calls repeatedly for the relationship between Philemon the master and Onesimus the slave to be one of loving Christian brothers, under which expectations of forced or obligatory servitude would simply not survive. So to walk in step with the truth of the gospel is to walk away from slavery, and he wants Philemon to be motivated by Christian love, not law or obligation. So to say it another way, when the New Testament gives instructions to masters and slaves that were obeyed, what was left of the master-slave relationship was much less of a relationship of owner and property. Where to take that from there, honestly, I, I do not know. Um, that's a, a thorny thing in scripture. I think this is something that merits a lot of further prayer and discussion. But I think it's important that we talk about this. Um, and lastly, before we move on from this topic, I, I do think it's really important that we acknowledge that the sin of slavery has not died out, um, and in fact still exists today. So the persistence of slavery in our world is a representation of the brokenness and sinfulness of our fallen state. I read some estimates online that said there's about 40 million people today who are in modern slavery, whether that's forced labor or human trafficking or sexual exploitation, which is actually more than any point in history, including in the Roman Empire when up to 50% of people were slaves. One quarter of the people today, these 40 million, so 10 million of them, are children. Chattel slavery was not even illegal everywhere in the world until 1981 and is still practiced openly against the law in some parts of the world today. There's a country in West Africa called Mauritania where the Joshua Project estimates that 99.7% of people have zero access to the gospel and 20% of the population are openly enslaved today, right now. Think about that. And then hit your knees. Okay, hopefully that provided more questions than answers. Um, you're welcome, Kevin. Um, <laughs> we're going to leave that there. We're going to return to some of these issues later on in the sermon. Um, that is the border of where I know what to say or do about this question. So I'm going to stop there. Um, that's an insufficient answer to some big questions, okay? All right, let's move to the text. <clears throat> so 
So for background, um, the book of Philemon was a letter that was written by Paul and co-signed by Timothy to a wealthy Christian in Colossae who had come to faith during Paul's three-year ministry in the city, which was about eight to ten years, we think, before the time of this letter being written. We think Paul wrote this letter around 62 AD. We know that he was on house arrest. We are not sure if he was on house arrest in Rome or Ephesus at this point. Um, There are strong cases for both. Uh, My reading of scripture and of the commentaries would seem to suggest it's more likely that Paul is on house arrest in Ephesus at this point, um, simply because it's a lot closer to Colossae. So Onesimus ran away from Colossae. Ephesus is about 100 miles away. These are both in modern-day western Turkey, southwestern Turkey. Um, Rome is about 1,300 miles from there, so that's quite a journey on foot. Um, So the likelihood that Onesimus fled all the way to Rome seems to be lower. Um, However, he may have fled to Rome uh, because it was easier to blend in and farther away from um, his master. Um, So either way, it doesn't matter too much, um, but Paul is either in Ephesus or in Rome at this time, um, and we believe he's awaiting trial um, for sharing the gospel. Paul sent this letter with another Christian brother named Tychicus, I think, or Tychicus, something like that, um, to deliver to Philemon in Colossae, along with delivering Onesimus himself back to Philemon. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, Many biblical historians are also pretty confident that this letter was sent at the same time or very much around the same time as Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So that would also lend itself to think that maybe Paul is in Ephesus. Um, This provides much needed context for the background of Colossians. And in fact, Onesimus is mentioned in Colossians 4.9, and we're reminded that he's a flesh and blood person with a story, um, and we can see that connected throughout different points of scripture. His inclusion in Paul's letter is even more earth-shattering when one considers the tremendous personal cost to Onesimus to even accept Paul's request to take this letter and go back to his master. Um, And he he actually, uh, there are some later writings um, from a second century uh, church bishop named Ignatius, you may have heard that name once or twice before, um, that seem to suggest that Onesimus went on to become an elder in the church of Colossae, which is pretty cool. The interesting thing, as I mentioned, is we do not know if that means that he gained his freedom or not, um, because he could have been an elder either way. Um, But if Ignatius is talking about the same Onesimus, it's a relatively common name, but we think it's the same guy, um, that's pretty cool, right? Um, So Onesimus ran away from Philemon as a slave. They were living in Colossae and ran to Ephesus or maybe Rome, where he met Paul, who shared Jesus with him. It's important to note the fact that Paul knew his master Philemon as a close friend and had the opportunity to share the gospel with his runaway slave in a major city with no texting or Facebook. The fact that they found each other uh, is pretty remarkable. Um, I don't think that's random coincidence. I do think that that means that there's divine intervention or that God ordained that uh, Onesimus and Paul should meet. It's also possible that Onesimus went to Ephesus slash Rome to find Paul, to seek him out, because he knew that Paul and Philemon were friends, and maybe that they had a strong mutual respect for each other, and maybe a letter from Paul would help him um, sort of get back into the good graces of his master. That's also possible. Those are both speculative, though. We don't know for sure, um, but once they met each other, Paul shared the gospel with him, Onesimus came to faith, Um, And Onesimus actually stayed, we think, for a couple of years to actually minister to Paul and his needs. Paul's an old man. He has quite a lot of ailments, and he's in prison. Um, It is also likely that Onesimus was able to keep his identity as a runaway slave a secret. 
in whichever city he was in. Because if the authorities who were guarding Paul knew that Onesimus was a runaway slave, they would not have allowed him to care for Paul in that way. Um, so it's likely that his identity is secret to everyone in Rome slash Ephesus, except for Paul. Um, and he, Paul, so what Paul is doing is he's sending Onesimus back to Philemon to address his severed relationship with his master and asking Philemon to receive him not as a bondservant but as a beloved brother. We don't know exactly, it doesn't exactly say if Paul is asking Philemon to grant Onesimus his freedom or just to see his slave as a beloved brother in Christ, but it's clear that holding a beloved brother in bondage would be dichotomous, as we talked about a few minutes ago. In fact, as we'll see, um, this letter is actually sort of a master class as a testament picture of gospel, gospel forgiveness, um, and convincing, frankly. We're going to get to that, too. Um, it's quite short. Uh, it's about a page in your Bible, 335 words in the Greek. Um, it begins with a greeting, followed by an expression of thanks and petition, a masterfully tactful addressing of the issue at hand, and ends with a brief conclusion and closing salutation. So let's reread, um, starting again in verse 1 to 3. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so for starters, this, this letter does begin a little bit differently than some of the other epistles. It's written more as sort of a letter of commendation for a household. Um, Paul has a very different tone here. Most of the other epistles are, Paul's a little bit like, this is maybe not a fair characterization of Paul, but almost beating people over the head with scripture to say like, hey, you need to do things differently, as he is writing scripture, to be clear. Um, this tone is a lot more tactful, it's a lot more friendly, it's a lot more cordial. Um, some people call this the postcard epistle, because it's sort of like a postcard from Paul to Philemon. Um, and it's very short and very personal. Um, the names listed here at the beginning are highly intentional, and they tell us a lot about Paul's intent for this letter, and the position that he's putting Philemon in. So Paul first identifies himself as a prisoner. That same word, doulos, actually means slave. So Paul is saying, I am a slave to Christ. Um, and that carries weight. Um, we're going to come back to that too. Um, but this letter is also sort of co-signed by Timothy to give it some validity. Um, so this is almost to say, this is from Paul, but Timothy is also in agreement with what I'm asking here. Um, he, the letter is first addressed to Philemon, who would be the master of the house, um, as well as Aphia and Archippus. We think those are Philemon's wife and son. Um, Archippus was likely a leader or an elder in this house church that was meeting in Philemon's home. Um, and Aphia is also really important here because under Roman custom at the time, she, as the woman of the house, would have been responsible for managing the home, which would include the management of the slaves in the home. So she would be, in many senses, um, Onesimus's master, or maybe almost maybe Philemon is Onesimus's master and Aphia is Onesimus's manager in that sense. I don't like to use that word, but um, they both sort of hold influence or authority over Onesimus's fate as a slave in the home. Um, this letter is also addressed to the church meeting in their home, which is a little interesting given how sensitive of an issue this is and how tactful this is. Uh, part of this comes down to the fact that we in the West think very individualistically, so that we would say this is an issue between Paul and Philemon, like this is no one else's business. Eastern thought is a lot more collective, right? So they would say this is an issue for the household to deal with, and this is something that everybody needs to be a part of and aware of. 
And Paul may also be sort of CCing them on this message as a way to make sure that there's some accountability so that Philemon doesn't read this, say, no, thank you, and put it to the side, and then no one knows. Um, so it also could be to say that this should be read before the church that meets in the home um, so that this is something that puts Philemon in a position where there's a lot of eyes on him, right? Um, and that's, that's not unintentional. Okay, let's pick up on verse 4. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So Paul is motivated here to pray for Philemon because of his faith, or the qualities of his faith, including his love for all the saints. This puts Philemon's relationship with Onesimus, now who is also one of the saints, under the banner of love, not just commerce. He's not just his slave, but he's a brother in Christ. We can read that Paul's prayer for Philemon is to better know Jesus and his goodness and to make him a more effective participant in the faith. That's a good and holy prayer, right? Um, and it's very clear here, Paul and Philemon are close. They have strong mutual respect for each other in the faith. And Paul has emotional and social standing to make a big ask of Philemon. Um, Philemon, it's also very clear, is a, you know, has a good reputation and, and strong influence within the church in Colossae. Um, and in fact, where it says that uh, he has refreshed the hearts of the saints, that word heart in Greek actually literally translates to like, it's not actually your heart, it's like your, your gut or your bowels. Um, and basically because like in some Greek cultures, there was this uh, belief that that's where your feelings came from. They came from your gut and not your heart. Um, and we can appreciate that in American vernacular, right? Um, so if your feelings come from here, maybe you could read that as like down to your very core or like to the, from your head to your toes or like your gut feeling or something like that in a way that we can think about that. Um, that's like a, a very deep, penetrating, refreshing of the soul essentially. Think about it that way. Um, okay, picking up again in verse 8, we're going to read sort of most of this plea here. Okay, so accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord." So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say, and at the same time prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Okay, so we're going to break this down, and you'll see what I'm saying, but I just want you guys to know where we're ending up is this is like, in a Christian sense and in a secular sense, 
just like a masterful way to convince someone or ask them of something. Um, And we're going to see that piece by piece here. In a biblical sense, this is an entreaty to love over culture and law from Paul to Philemon regarding Onesimus' freedom and treatment. Um, And before we get too much further, I just want to remind us, like, it's important to appreciate the size of the ask here. So that's when I need your first century AD goggles back on. Um, This is not, like, countercultural in the way that you might wear, like, a cheesy Jesus t-shirt with a Bible verse on it on the train and feel really proud of yourself for, like, sharing the gospel with everybody. Like, that's not what this is. This is, like, unheard of, and it flies in the face of Roman law and tradition and is a major financial and social request on Philemon, which, under the law, he has no obligation apart from Christ to fulfill. In fact, depending on what Onesimus did to wrong Philemon before he fled, we don't know. We don't know if he stole something or messed something up or what caused him to, like, flee. Um, Even if it was just the fleeing in and of itself, um, it's likely that Philemon even had the right to have Onesimus put to death for his crimes if he had chosen to do so. And in the historical context, even within the context of the early church, that would not be abnormal, okay? Like, Philemon, to put this in plain English, like Philemon had every right to exercise his rights as a slave owner under the law at that time, and it would be normal and, in fact, expected that he would do that. So the the fact that Paul would ask him not only to not punish, but to potentially free and accept his slave as a brother in Christ with the full rights and permissions that would come with that, this this is... a highly sensitive situation. Um, and you can see that Paul's tact in how he asks for that and how he builds his case and his argument is extremely thoughtful and extremely intentional. Um, and we're going to see that in just a minute here. But I, like, I don't think we have the ability, thank God, in our context to understand like, what this means because we, we don't live in a slaveholding society, thank the Lord. But in this time, in this context, this is like, this is a, a huge, countercultural, radical, wild thing that Paul is asking Philemon to do, even within the church. So let's walk through that. Let's walk through the lengths that Paul is willing to go to in building his appeal for reconciliation between Philemon and Onesimus. And we're just going to go through this verse by verse, starting in 8. Okay, so in verse 8, Paul begins by reminding Philemon of his apostolic authority. He could command Philemon to treat Onesimus as a brother or even grant him his freedom within his authority within the church. So saying that the the authority of the church should supersede the authority of Roman law, and Paul is Paul, and he's telling you to do it, so you should do it. He says, I could do that, but I won't. Don't make me, (laughs) essentially. Um, He also relies on the fact that he's old and that he's a prisoner. So he's sort of saying, respect your elders and... Look at what I am doing and sacrificing for the gospel, so please listen to what I'm saying. Um, he, he essentially is just relying on his stature in the gospel as a prisoner, as an old man, and a Christian brother, asking another Christian brother to act in love rather than exercise his rights under the law to keep Onesimus under bondage or even punish him for running away. Um, he uses gentle words. He invokes mutual love. He's sort of saying, like, don't make me pull rank. I could, but I won't. Um, And this is an example of how Philemon should treat Onesimus. Philemon could also exercise his rights and his authority, and he could pull rank. And Paul is saying, I could do that, and I'm not going to. Imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? 
Okay, verse 10, Paul heightens the sense of Onesimus being in the family of God, saying he's his spiritual child. Um, so however you deal with him, think of it as though you are dealing with my son. Um, in verse 11, this is almost like an ancient Greek pun. I do not think it's funny. I, I don't get it. But um, essentially, there was a, it's like a trope, or almost maybe we would call it like a meme today, to say that like slaves from this particular region of Phrygia, uh, people called them useless. I, there must be some deeper meaning there I don't understand, but Onesimus was clearly from Phrygia, and he would be considered a useless slave under this cultural understanding. I don't know what that is, or we don't have anything there. I don't get the joke. But the word Onesimus, Onesimus' name, actually translates from Greek to mean useful. Um, so how interesting is that, that Paul would say, actually, someone who was formerly useless to you under your cultural understanding is now useful to you because of what his name is, but also because he's now a brother in Christ. So he's not just a slave. This is not just a relationship about commerce. This is a relationship about love. Um, and that changes that dynamic. Um, so... A lot of commentators talk about how this is a pun. Like I said, there's something here we don't understand, but this is, this is artful. This is very tactful and careful of Paul to, to like add to his case, to say we're going to sort of have a play on words here to get you to understand what I'm trying to say. Verse 12, Onesimus is clearly important to Paul. He's saying he's sending his very heart. Verse 13, he reminds Philemon that he has sacrificed for him, almost increasing Philemon's virtual debt to Paul. Um, in verse 14, he says, I know you don't have to do this, but you, sh you should. So he's showing respect for Philemon's rights. In verse 15, he's laying out his case for why this whole situation is really going to turn out for Philemon's advantage anyways. In verse 16, he says that they sort of can't have this traditional master-slave relationship anymore. Things can't remain as they were. He's a brother now. There's neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, slave or free. Christ is in all, is all and in, in all. Um, what's interesting is that that verse actually comes from Colossians 3.11, um, and we are pretty confident that that verse is actually about Philemon, which is pretty cool, something else I did not realize. Um, verse 17, again, there's sort of this obligation, if you consider me a partner. That word partner is the word koinonia, which we have preached on here in the past. Um, that word also could translate to mean like fellowship or brotherhood, um, and that's basically a sort of an appeal to say, to Philemon, if, if we really are partners in the gospel, if we really are brothers in Christ, um, let's see this the same way. Let's, let's read from the same sheet of music. Let's um, look at this with the same goggles, if you will. Um, and then verse 18 and 19, Paul offers to take on any of Onesimus' indebtedness to make Philemon whole for any damages that he would have suffered to satisfy the demands of the law and of the wounded party. Paul is willing to literally get the bill in every sense, um, and makes himself the object of the appeal. He's saying, refresh my heart, not Onesimus's heart, refresh my heart, right? Let me make you whole so that, that I would be refreshed to see that this whole situation has been resolved. It's, it's not, he's like so closely identifying with Onesimus and his case that he's physically stepping into his place in terms of the debt and the relief of that debt. Does that sound like somebody else you might know? Hold that thought. This is a beautiful reflection of this doctrine of imputation, that Christ takes our sins on his ledger and off of ours, and that he was treated in the way that we should be treated. And Philemon would no doubt sort of feel shame from this almost, to say that, the, what, is he really going to go to Apostle Paul, who's in prison, and like, 
doing everything possible to share the gospel and say, like, all right, you can buy his freedom. It's going to cost you this much. Write me a check. Like, is Philemon really going to do that? A wealthy man in Colossae is going to say that to the Apostle Paul. I don't think so. So this is, this is, um, this is an ask, but it's not a, it's a hypothetical ask in some senses. Verse 20, he's repeating his heart for this. In verse 21, this is kind of almost like straight-up emotional manipulation a little bit. Like, I know you'll do more than I ask of you. Like, this is a big thing, but, like, you're going to do more than that, I'm confident. Um, And then basically, in verse 22, he says, prepare a room for me, which in some senses could be like, oh, I hope to visit you soon. And in some senses, if you're thinking about, if you're tracking with Paul's case here, he's almost saying, like, prepare a room. I might drop by and see how this is going um, and see if you have accepted my plea essentially. Um, Don't disappoint me, (laughs) in some senses. Um, When I get out of prison, I'm going to come visit you, and we'll see how this goes. Again, that also gives us a little bit of evidence to suggest that Paul is in Ephesus, because he was planning to go to Spain. So if he was in Rome, he'd be going backwards to go visit um, Philemon's house, so we think he's probably not that far away. So according to tradition, we don't know actually what Philemon did when he received this letter, but we think Paul's venture was successful. We think Philemon accepted Onesimus back as a brother, and that Onesimus even became an elder at that church in Colossae and had a long ministry. Um, That's according to extra-biblical texts, um, so we have to wonder about that a little bit more, Um, but the tradition would suggest that Philemon did, in fact, accept Paul's treat, uh, ask, basically. So overall, this is a compelling and concise multi-pronged appeal to Philemon to honor Onesimus' faith in Christ, treat him as a brother, regardless of his station in life. Paul kind of works all the angles here. You know, he's, he's asking, he's being tactful, he's joking, he's sort of guilting him a little bit, he's sort of like providing accountability. Like, this is a pretty airtight argument when you really see it line by line and you see the case being built. Um, and when you look at it within the historical context, it's pretty easy to see the the care and sensitivity through which Paul is building this case and making this request. This is not just like a, hey, like, hope you're having a good summer. Like, hey, can you do me a, little, do me a solid and let this happen? Like, this is, this is a very diligent, careful case. And when Paul says he will pay that indebtedness, and he says, I, will, I write this with my own hand, what we think is that in a lot of those historical, like a lot of the manuscripts of epistles that we have in the New Testament— the, there are certain parts where Paul says, I'm writing this with my own hand, and the text gets really bigger, like, gets a lot bigger, and is actually, like, harder to read. So, like, and I don't know what he had, maybe he had, like, Parkinson's or something like that, where, like, he had, he would dictate letters to people, and they would write them down, and then when it's really serious and really important, Paul's like, give me the pen, I'm going to write this myself, and then, like, the handwriting changes, and you know that's Paul, and, like, this is a, this is hard for him to do. Like, he's not physically able to, like, write well at this point in his life. Maybe he got beaten too many times in his hand or something. We don't know. But his ability to physically write these things out was limited. And when it's really important, he's like, no, this one is coming from me. This is, like, Paul's own hand, not through a third party. Um, so there's, there's every thing, every part of this plea is diligently thought out, carefully planned, highly sensitive, highly tactful, and the case builds from, like, gentle ways of addressing Philemon's rights and his feelings to going up to saying, like, I'm going to check on you, right? So, like, full circle here. Are you guys seeing this? Okay. 
This is a this is a plea that is just it, it's it's highly it's highly countercultural it's highly unexpected and it's something that we have to think about within that right context. Um, but when we think through like applications of the gospel here, I see three really obvious ways. First is that there's there's this physical image of Philemon as a master, Onesimus as a slave, and and Paul as someone who is standing in the gap between them. Do you see the image of the gospel there? Philemon holds the authority to judge the sin of Onesimus, who sins against his master and runs away from him. Paul steps into the gap to offer to bear the weight and shame of Onesimus' debt before his master and presents him as an heir and a brother to Philemon rather than a useless sinner deserving of mere punishment. And then Onesimus physically repents and turns and goes back to his master. Physically, he runs away, turns around in his body and goes back. Uh, do, you, do you see that? Do you see that beautiful image of repentance there? And can you see yourself in that image? Can you imagine yourself as Onesimus, prostrate before your master who you've sinned against, holding up Paul's letter, quivering and just waiting for him to respond? And instead of like what it would be under the law, just retribution, you are embraced, forgiven, and loved. Can you imagine just the wave that would wash over you in that moment? It's just like us standing before God, covered in the blood of Jesus. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus and, he's, and not us, and charges our sin to his account and not ours. Without Christ, we stand before God as a useless runaway slave deserving of punishment for our sins. We feel ashamed, worthless, and far from him. Instead as a substitute, one who is willing to take for all of us the punishment that we deserved, saying, charge it to my account, and stretching out his arms to hang on the cross for me and for you. Our Heavenly Father is a good master and a good father, and he passes over us with the death that we deserve for our sin and puts it to death instead on the cross. That slate is wiped clean, we're clothed in his righteousness, and we can run towards the Father's full embrace with full acceptance covered by the blood of the Savior. Second, we go from becoming a slave to sin to a slave to righteousness. Regardless of Onesimus' ultimate social status after Philemon receives Paul's letter, we don't know if he actually freed him or just chose to see him as a brother. But we know that he's been redeemed <clears throat> by Jesus and that that's powerful. But he was not emancipated. He was bought. I'm going to say that again. He was not emancipated. He was bought. Scripture says repeatedly that we have been ransomed, redeemed, rescued, and yes, bought with the blood of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so honor God with your body. We are rescued from slavery to sin, not so that we can be free to do whatever we want, but so that we can be slaves to righteousness. By the way, Notice how Paul introduced himself at the beginning of this letter. Paul and almost every New Testament writer identifies at the beginning of the letter as a slave or a prisoner, that word doulos for Christ. It's almost every letter in the New Testament. Paul himself in Philemon says it four times. Let me remind you, too, that Paul is also not free in an earthly sense. He's under house arrest. He's in prison. He's awaiting trial. And this is probably one of the last letters he wrote before he was likely martyred. So in a physical, earthly sense and in a spiritual sense, Paul is a prisoner to Christ Jesus and for Christ Jesus. Let me read to you from Romans 6, 15 to 19. It says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. 
Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, become slaves of righteousness. King Jesus is also Lord because he is the master of our lives, and we must be willing to submit to him and his supremacy over all things. We in our American lives love to enjoy the free gift of grace of Jesus as Savior, but struggle to submit to Jesus as Lord of our lives with the same excitement. We want all the benefits of faith, but none of the costs. But I'm here today to tell you that you cannot have a Savior if you do not have a Lord. If we go back to Romans 6 that we just read, and back up a few verses, we see this so clearly. Starting in verse 19, it says, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. This theme is all over scripture. I'm just going to read you guys one more passage that gets at this. And this actually goes back to what we were talking about about slavery at the beginning. This gives us a little hint um, to help us understand God's attitude towards earthly slavery. This is 1 Corinthians 7, 17 to 24. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to that which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at this time of the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything or uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, whatever condition each was called, let, there let them remain with God. That is not me saying that people should continue to be slaves. That's me saying whether you are Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, we are all in Christ and Christ is in all. And what matters to us is we go from becoming a slave to sin to a slave to righteousness. He who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. And likewise, he who was free when is called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. In fact, that price was the most priceless commodity in the history of the universe, which is the blood of Jesus. So church, serve the Lord in your Christian freedom, being free from the yoke of slavery and a proud slave to righteousness. Know that you were not emancipated but bought and that you belong to him now and he must be the Lord of your life if he is to be your savior. Lastly, we see Paul's call to Philemon to mirror the undeserved forgiveness that he received from God in faith horizontally to Onesimus. While the word forgiveness never actually appears in the book of Philemon itself, it is dripping with the principles of Christian forgiveness. When we are wronged and have rights to exercise under the law like Philemon, we are so prone to forget, so quick to forget what heaps of infinite grace we have been given in both our common grace and our saving grace. It is by the mercy of God that you are able to live and move and have your being at all, which means breathing right now, 
let alone the saving grace you have been extended in the cross that covers over all of your sins and makes you from a wretch to a co-heir with Christ. How often then do we turn around and extend petty unforgiveness about things that do not matter for eternity to others? How foolish is this in light of what we have been given? Withholding forgiveness is not freedom. As Kevin has said many times, unforgiveness is the only poison we take expecting the other person to get sick. Church, how freeing it is to live daily in the grace of knowing that we have been forgiven of the most egregious wrongs in the darkest corners of our heart, and we have been blessed to to be able to extend a tiny, broken, fragmented reflection of that to other people. Imagine, again, Onesimus standing before his master and hearing Philemon say, welcome home, instead of turning to punishment. Not only are we like Onesimus before our master, but we also have others in the same position as Onesimus if we are Philemon, right? And Paul shows us what gospel love looks like. The gospel not only changes our status and makes us new, it also changes how we love and forgive others. In Ephesians 4.32, Paul writes, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Okay. All right, so what do we do with this? If you call yourself a Christ follower, first remind yourself of what God has ransomed you from. Do you daily live under the promise of the letter that you hold up to your master? Does your life look like that of one who thinks he has been emancipated or one that knows he has been bought? What part of your life have you been holding on to that you can surrender to the lordship of Jesus? And who do you need to mirror your gospel forgiveness to? If you're outside the faith, firstly, do you still know that you're in bondage to your sin? Are you on the run from your master? If you're asking big questions, first know that God is big enough to handle your questions and that he is a good father. But think about your nature. Is it inclined towards self-governance or is it inclined towards slavery? Kevin often gives that image of us with a ball and a chain, right? And we twirl it and we're looking for something to attach it to. We in our nature must be slaves of something. Will you be slave to righteousness or slave to sin? What is your chain attached to? Lastly, is unforgiveness weighing you down? Without the gospel, we can't understand true forgiveness. It's the only picture of grace and mercy that we have. So if you haven't thought about that, I invite you to come explore it. You will never reach the bottom. Pray with me. God, I thank you for this picture of just gospel forgiveness, Lord. I I thank you for this picture of just perfect love. Um, And Lord, that we would just choose to put grace and love and mercy over, that we would choose to put grace and love and mercy over the law, Lord, that we would forgo our rights for another, um, and Lord, that you would just, um, just fill us with the, the understanding that we are slaves to righteousness and that we would wear that as a badge of honor. Mm-hmm. Um, I just ask all these things in your name. Amen.